Hello and welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida and joining me this week is Dr. Peter Bagshaw to discuss loss and grief. Peter. Thank you, Andrew. And I'm Peter Bagshaw. I'm a GP in Somerset and I'm also the Clinical Commissioning Group uh, Mental Health Lead. So it's something that's certainly interested me for, for many years. Thank you. And uh, I've been interested in uh, physician health and the health of, of the health of everybody, really, but um, the health of health professionals, particularly, because, you know, Peter, if you ask 100 people how they are, what do they say? Well, generally, they say, I'm fine, thank you, and don't mean it, of course. Absolutely. So, and fine stands for fearful, insecure, neurotic and emotionally imbalanced. As GPs, there's a danger that if you ask them, they actually tell you what they what they mean, but uh, that doesn't happen outside the surgery. But but most of us use denial. And if you ask a hundred health professionals or mothers or carers or or others how they are, they very often can't answer, and so they use denial. And so, as as health professionals, as as carers, as as mothers, and as many others in life, we actually start by not looking after our own health because we're too too busy looking after other people. And that picks up very well to a conversation I was having uh, yesterday with our mental health team where uh, we're talking about the mental health of our staff on psychiatric wards. And uh, they said, well, no, they're fine. They all say, we're not going to get it. It's fine. It's patients who get this, not staff. So denial absolutely runs right. Interesting. And we have that professionally. But today we're, we're talking about loss and grief, which is sadly always topical for, for many people in life um, and particularly at this moment is appears very topical and I would certainly say my heart goes out to anyone um, who's suffering with distress at the moment because it's it's difficult times. Absolutely it's, it's always difficult and, and you and I have both dealt with uh, very a great deal of grief and bereavement over the years but these seem exceptional times because people aren't able to use the normal mechanisms uh, that we do to cope with grief. So being unable to see people when they're gravely ill or dying, uh, being able, unable to market in a public way is, is, makes the, the already difficult task even harder, I think, don't you? Absolutely. Is there any way that we can navigate ourselves through what often seems a sort of a morass of emotions that we we get waves of emotions when when something when someone that we're attached to um, has we've lost them or when something has gone wrong? Is there any sort of regular way of understanding this sort of thing in your experience? I think the the way that we can divide it into different clusters of emotions can be helpful in making sense of what often seems a, a chaotic and, and never-ending process. So you've done a lot of work on this, Andrew, haven't you? So do you want to say a bit about the, uh, the recognising loss, preventing loss, recovering loss, letting go of loss uh, phases? Thank you. Thank you, Peter, very much. And I would pay tribute to um, Dr. Trevor Griffiths from South Devon for, for developing something called emotional logic. And you've just given us the four phases that we go through before anything happens where we're in normal phase and nothing yet has happened. Uh, and this, these phases, um, Peter, are not just about losing something that means something uh, a great deal to us, but also about success, because every new change in life um, every new 
birth, every house move, every new job, um, every moving on actually starts with loss. So these phases of loss are common to to every every part of life for us. And absolutely. Sorry, can I just interrupt there? Um, because I, I've certainly heard people say that living is coming to terms with loss. So it's not just the loss of loved ones. It's loss of childhood, loss of youth, loss of uh, sometimes health, uh, loss of dark hair. It, it, it's absolutely woven through our life, isn't it? It is. And the only thing that's, uh, they say, they, uh, the only thing that's inevitable really is that change is always there. So if we understand these phases of change, then it gives us a handle on what's happening. Um, you mentioned four. So the first one is recognising that loss is actually happening. But of course, what can happen in that point is that um, we experience the emotions attached to those, which are shock and denial. Uh, and we all know that rabbits caught in headlights will freeze, and that's a mammalian response to shock. We freeze, and uh, we can't manage to do anything else. So that's the first response that we have. And I think we've almost seen that uh, in the current pandemic, where, to begin with, we, we all thought, oh, well, this is something happening a, a long way away. It won't affect us. Uh, and then we thought, well, maybe it'll affect some of us. But uh, this this denial is, is absolutely a part of what everybody does, I think, isn't it? You're quite right. And as we move through these phases of, of, of emotional states, which... Um, Trevor actually says these are phases of growth. These are stepping stones to growth. We then try to prevent the loss. We try to prevent the loss of something dear to us. Um, and the classic emotions we feel are anger uh, and guilt. I'd be interested in your views on those emotions because there's something that we as healthcare professionals see. And although they're understandable, and, and I've certainly experienced it myself um, when people close to me have, have passed away and I've, I felt particularly guilty that as a doctor I, I haven't been able to stop their death. But they seem very negative emotions. And I'd be interested to hear your views on what purpose they serve and how we can get stop getting stuck in this very destructive stage. Um, thank you, Peter. Well, interesting you should ask that question because every emotion actually has a meaning and it has a purpose. So the meaning, um, just backtracking, of shock is, I don't know how to cope. I'm doubting my resources. The purpose is, well, stop trying to do everything. Find a safe place to review your resources. And if we think about denial in that recognition of, of loss phase, denial means, as you were just saying, I can carry on regardless. If I ignore it, it'll go away. Um, and the purpose is, just wait for now, keep going for what's important. But moving to those two really important emotions as we start to recognise loss and we want to try and prevent it, anger is what we experience when we want to prevent the loss of something that's important to us. Uh, and the useful purpose is that creative energy can actually be used to make changes outside the world. Uh, outside in the world and ourselves. And anger transformed is actually creativity. And very often we see that uh, in life. If you can transform that anger, then it becomes a positive, useful force. Whereas if it remains as a, as a negative, frustrated um, um, emotion, actually it corrodes us on the inside, unfortunately. 
Yes, and of course, funneling your energies into preventing this potential loss uh, can actually stop it happening in some cases. We're talking about bereavement, so by definition, we're talking about situations where that hasn't happened. Um, but we all know of circumstances where people show enormous resolve and, and courage and, and anger that gets them through otherwise un unfaceable situations, don't we? And particularly thinking back to some of the wartime stories that have come out as this has coincided with the uh, VE Day celebrations or commemoration, commemoration, I should say, rather than celebrations, I think. Absolutely. The other strong emotion that we feel at the, at the time is, is guilt. And that's an internal emotion of asking, did, did something I do cause it? And we all feel guilty about funny little things in life that have happened in childhood or other times that's nothing to do with us. But we ask ourselves that. And the purpose is, what else can I learn uh, that I could do in future to prevent it happening? And now, the interesting thing about human beings is that we have these, these fascinating brains with prefrontal cortices which can conceptualise, we can, we can imagine the future, we can remember the past and we can live in the present. But that human brain is on top of the mammalian brain of emotional and social emotions uh, and the reptilian brain of, of fear. And sometimes we default to those aspects of the brain. So at a time, well, every moment of our life, we're asking ourselves little questions. What if that happens? If only so-and-so happens. What if this Dr. Trasida stops droning on? Then I can go and have the, whatever else I need to do. And <laughs> what if so-and-so? At a time of high emotion, uh, Peter, what can happen is these little thoughts get emotion attached to them. And they start to circle. And so the little thoughts like, well, if only I'd stayed in London and not moved to Somerset. What if I'd, what if we'd lived in Lancashire? If only I'd stopped smoking 20 years ago. What if I'd taken one sugar less in my tea? If only I'd done a bit more exercise. What if I'd visited my mother more frequently? If only the doctors such and such. What if, what if the medicines that they'd been, that they had available, what if they'd used such and such a medicine instead of others? quite interesting at a time of high emotion these little questions which normally we just dismiss they get anger or guilt attached at which point they start to circle and they cycle and they can pester and fester and turn to poison at which point we either hold this in as guilt or we cast it out as blame neither of which is on is at all fair so if ever if I used to say in charge to my patients there, if anybody, if ever you meet the what-ifs or the if-onlys, you've got my full permission to just ask them to go away and give yourself some peace of mind. Because very often this is an emotional phase we're working through, not a rational question. Absolutely. That's a really interesting insight and something we see not just with today's topic, but in a lot of mental health issues, that things like guilt are incredibly important in keeping us safe. Um, and people who don't feel any guilt at all uh, cause a lot of grief to themselves and others. But it seems that these normal emotions, which are there to be protected, uh, if they are taken to extremes, they can then become damaging, uh, much like autoimmune reactions in, in physical health, where the body is fighting off invaders, but if it, if it gets caught up with fighting itself, you get into this vicious cycle, as you describe. And, and we see so many people who get stuck 
in this hamster wheel of thoughts that they just can't get out of. And, and our thoughts go out to them because it's such a difficult place to be. So how, how would we help people be still in themselves and how would we help them at times of, of that sort of emotion? I think first by accepting that what they are experiencing is real and distressing to them. Uh, you mentioned that guilt is often about going over things that have happened and, and worry is often about uh, worrying about things that are yet to happen. So the, the basic uh, mindfulness techniques of trying to focus on the here and now, live in the moment, rather than reliving a past that we can't change, I think can be powerful. Do you have other techniques that you find useful? Um, I think that's a very good one. You've mentioned mindfulness. Should we just do one together a minute, Peter, so for, for anybody who's listening? So as long as you're not actually driving a vehicle, if you're listening or using heavy machinery, we invite you to put both feet flat on the floor to allow your spines to be comfortable and to just using, maybe using your nose, maybe using your mouth, but using your tummy muscles to take three slow, regular, rhythmic breaths in and out and in that process what we're doing is changing the settings of the body's engine management system away from the alert and danger setting to the calm rest and digest away from sympathetic drive to parasympathetic drive and just focusing on that breathing can bring us back into the now because at a time of distress shock we catch our breath don't we and we take a sharp intake of breath and we trap that emotion uh, and it's very interesting that when we get something off our chest we can get it off by sobbing <laughs> or laughing ha 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 and the muscles that we use to get something off our chest whether we're sobbing or laughing uh, laughing are actually the same now I'm, I'm please i'm not making fun of anybody but inappropriate humor at a time of tension is something that the emergency services and the armed forces and others know very well that works um, so it's very curious how we get stuff off our chest i think as medical students we all developed this rather black humor didn't we as we uh, came face to face with uh, the difficult realities. And it's fascinating what you say about this interplay between physical and emotional. So I, I absolutely would in, encourage people to try these exercises. It's, it's not airy fairy new age nonsense. And they're, they're actually, uh, they've shown the changes in brain waves when people meditate or chant or uh, practice mindfulness, haven't they? So there are actual real physical things happening inside the brain. Absolutely. The interaction between mind and body is far more powerful than we know. And just changing our breathing and slowing ourselves down can actually allow ourselves to feel safer. And in the phases that we've just discussed, shock means that we need to find a safe place. Now, a safe place is either a frame of mind and by stilling our breathing and and you may be using a Headspace app or, or some mindfulness technique, um, we can feel safe. We can feel safe in a relationship um, with, with a loved one, with, with family or with friends or with others. Or we can feel safe in a particular place. So it's worth remembering which or worth trying to remember which your safe places are, either a physical place, a relationship or a frame of mind trying to work on each of those so that you can always find somewhere safe to process life's challenges. 
I think that's really helpful. Would it be useful to look at the next stage of recovering loss? Because again, the bargaining and depression that we experience are really just an exaggeration of normal day-to-day emotions, aren't they? They are, and thank you for asking. So with bargaining, um, the meaning of bargaining is I must try to do something to get back what has been lost. And the useful purpose is that it gives the energy to take risk to deal with the situation in new ways. And as we know, there are three types of bargaining. There's aggressive bargaining, which means I know what I want and I'm just going to take it. There's passive-aggressive bargaining, which is a a sort of a manipulative way of achieving the same end. And then there's, there's a fair bargaining, there's assertive bargaining, which says, look, Peter, this isn't good for you, and this is what I'm going through. How can we work it out together so that we both come out of this as best as possible? How can we minimize our losses? Uh, and if we are able to if we are able to state our own needs and hear the other person or hear the situation and state their needs, then we can work together uh, moving forwards. The other emotion that we often feel at the at the uh, recovering of lost days is, is is depression, and I don't mean clinical depression. For clinical depression, please do see your doctor. Um, and it's really important that depression should be treated. But but a flat state of no energy when we're just sort of, we, oh, what's the use? I haven't got the energy to deal with this. Um, allows us to realise that we may seem empty and powerless, but actually it's important to see what our limits are so that we don't strive for the impossible. Um, and then when we've worked through the recovery of loss, we can reach that point of, of letting go and acceptance. We can recognise that we can't change what's happened. We're powerless over that loss. But actually, there are other areas of the human race. Um, there are other areas of life where I can discover uh, my creative talents and, and, and where I'm valued, where other people value me. And the purpose, of course, is then to rejoin the human race using energy again to explore life. And again, it's interesting that you choose bargaining, for instance, that is absolutely something that we do in day-to-day life. But uh, in a situation, unfortunately, where we're facing mortality, uh, there's not much to bargain with. I, I'm reminded of, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal, Queen Elizabeth's, uh, my kingdom for a, a moment of time. Uh, and depression, again, that, that's been shown to have some benefits. It, it, it feels like a completely negative Thing, but it does conserve your energy and, and allow you, as you say, that space to re-enter life. So although we're maybe looking on these emotions as, as negative things and things we should move through, uh, do you agree that it's important to acknowledge that they are inevitable stages in going through, uh, coming to terms with grief and something that we shouldn't rush to, to get out of or uh, to reject? I completely agree, um, Peter. Trevor Griffith says that these are the stepping stones to growth. And I think the biggest challenge is to not try and rush it, to, to be patient with ourselves, to be kind to ourselves. One of the very interesting things that we're seeing at the moment is, is how, how so many people are, are exhibiting gratitude and, and kindness uh, in ways that is unexpected. And that's just so lovely to see. 
But the most difficult person to be kind to, for many of us as humans, is actually ourselves. Um, and whenever there's been a bereavement or, or a big event, we always say that we have to forgive it, but we have to forgive three ways. We have to forgive, for instance, in a death. We have to forgive the event, the death. We have to forgive the other person for going and leaving us. And we have to forgive ourselves for feeling the way we do. And that final step of, of forgiving ourselves is actually really quite a, a tough one because we all beat ourselves up. We, whether we should have a stiff upper lip or boys don't cry or it's not appropriate to show emotions or there are all sorts of cultural issues that's, that, that inhibit us um, from working through the process. And I think as healthcare professionals, we're particularly hard on ourselves, aren't we? And we have external bodies that are quite hard on us as well, unfortunately. Um, but there is very much this, this macho culture um, that, that several doctors have described that, that they find very hard to deal with. So when they had tried to be kind to themselves and give themselves some space, sadly, a few have, have found, uh, like Adam Kay, that colleagues have been quite unsympathetic. It's really tough. So what positive things can help support us, do you think, in, in, in readjusting to life and, and, and getting over our losses? What are the important things, do you think? I think you've mentioned quite a few of them. So being kind to ourselves, incredibly important. Uh, giving ourselves time and space to go through these feelings, accepting them uh, rather than beating ourselves up that we're not able to just carry on as normal. I think all of these are, are very important. And obviously, if we're not able to do that with our own resources, uh, there are lots of organisations out there. I don't know if you want to go through specifics, but there's a lot of people who help with grief and loss. Oh, it would be very helpful to mention some of them, if you would, please. Well, um, we're setting up a specific uh, uh, bereavement service, but I think the, the easiest thing for people to remember is that we have the Somerset Mine Line, which is uh, in the current way of social distancing, of port of call for anyone suffering any sort of mental health distress. So if you just search, uh, I'm being careful not to advertise particular search engines here, uh, search online for Somerset Mine Line, uh, they're available 24-7, and they can direct you to specific uh, grief counselling services, uh, if that's appropriate. Thank you, and crews do great work, and of course we don't for distress the samaritans and i am going to um, um, advertise here 116123 is a number that everybody should have engraved on their hearts in case of desperation um, to be able to ring the other things that can help us of course coming back to our own resources are <coughs> excuse me are finding somebody else to talk to um, contacting other people um, we've talked about professionals but we get great support from our own friends and also, our physical bodies do need to move, so exercise of any sort can help us um, process stuff, um, particularly if we're lucky enough to be able to walk in uh, round a, round some nice streets or in, a, in some nice countryside somewhere. But time in nature uh, can be very helpful, as, as well as pastimes or hobbies, um, any faith or practice that honours our spirituality or anything that connects us to something outside ourselves. Because when we, when we turn in on ourselves, we tend not to, to resolve things so easily as when we, when we allow support to come towards us. 
I think the other thing about uh, what you said, which I absolutely endorse, uh, is that often we have to go through the motions of those things. I see lots of people uh, who used to enjoy, say, walking, take no pleasure in it at all, but do it anyway. And it feels as though doing the action, sometimes the, the feelings can follow. So it's really important to carry on uh, being out in the world, isn't it? Yes. And that inner calmness uh, at a time of personal turmoil, if we can have some techniques that bring us inner calm, then we release any fears and worries and, and health improves. And maybe in time, happiness can return. Which takes us on to our last acceptance, letting go of loss, which doesn't come to everybody. And a patient described it to me as not like getting over flu. It's like getting over losing an arm or a leg. The loss is always there, but you learn to live with it. I don't know if that's your experience, Andrew. Yes, there's a, a new normal. Um, that's not a phrase I wish I could be using, really. But uh, but life is not the same, but it's different. I remember um, my father dropped dead uh, when I was 21, and it's, it takes a while to adjust. But one gets to a point where one lives life as others would wish you to live, um, different, um, obviously with regrets, um, but, but we move on. Uh, and we're our own self again. And if we can keep calm and stay grounded, life does return to stability. Obviously, it's very much to the fore in the current crisis, but loss, bereavement, grief is part of the human condition, isn't it? Uh, it it's the price we pay for caring, as uh, Queen Elizabeth said. It's the price we can't pay for caring, and as Trevor Griffiths would say, you can only grieve if you have loved. So we have to, we have to accept that the price of of love is that we will have loss at some level, but far better to have had the love and the experiences. Absolutely. I, I think we'd all endorse that. It's uh, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved before. It, it's a price worth paying for being human, isn't it? Thank you very much, Peter. That's a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. Hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. <laughs>